of critical importance to see in this passage. When we see this passage of the whole entirety of chapter 3, it would seem to be so discouraging, right? Man had everything. The devil comes, deceives Eve. She turns, gives fruit to her husband. Uh, Adam then, being the federal head of the human race, then uh, sins. Their eyes of both of them are opened. They now realize their nakedness. They cover themselves up with fig leaves. They hear the Lord coming to walk in the garden, and they are afraid of him. They hide behind a tree, and now each one of them takes their time and takes their turn to shift the blame to someone or something else, never coming to this sort of immediate response as they should have of going, Lord, I have sinned. Something's wrong. We're naked. This is not right. But the Lord in his mercy and in his goodness, as he judges them, promises a savior, promises one who is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. And we've talked about how this is the promise of the gospel. And now we've gotten to this point here in verse 20 to 24, where we see that there is this promise, even in the midst of death, of life, that even for us now, even today, understanding that while there will be a physical death, that for those who are in Christ, those who have been clothed by his uh, blood and his righteousness, we now have the promise and assurance of eternal life, of everlasting life. And so let's look here, verse 21, it says, And Adam called his wife's name Eve. And as we've been talking about the past few weeks, he goes on to say, because she was the mother of all living. The word Eve is that of life or life giver. And so this shows the promise that it is not going to be Eve who is going to be the Messiah, but rather through her lineage, through the lineage of faith, through her seed, as he had just promised in, in verse 15, the Savior will come. We spent the past few weeks focusing on two major words, and that is, um, the, the promise and the provision of God. The promise is the word of God. And, and then the provision is the work of God. And we have found that Jesus Christ is the one who is the fulfiller of the promise and the provision of God. He is the fulfillment of the word of God to do the work of God. And so everything from Genesis to Revelation flows and points to not and just an event, but even more so to the person and work of of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so tonight, we're going to focus in here on verse 21. As he moves on, he says, And unto Adam also his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. That's going to be our focus tonight. But look here, verse 22 to 24. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man. And he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way the tree of life. This would seem absolutely so depressing if we do not see the truth of what we're going to focus at tonight. The reason why God is going to clothe them and has to clothe them and the reason why God has to drive them out is not because he's mean, unjust, unforgiving, or unloving, but rather because he is loving, just, and gracious and merciful. And we're going to see that he does these things to demonstrate those things so that there is this wonderful redemption storyline throughout all of the Bible, throughout all of human history, that we are saved by grace through faith. Nothing else, nothing more, nothing less. Let's look here. God's character, if you're following along in the booklet, if not, that's okay too. I'm not offended either way. I really don't care. I got it in front of me. So, God's character. Look at this. Verse 21. Unto Adam also to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Now, this is a stark contrast already before we really get into this. Just a few short verses ago, it says in verse number 7, And the eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Now, what do we find here in verse 21? They're no longer making their own clothes. God does this work. God does the work of clothing them to bring about an atoning sacrifice, to bring about a full and complete covering. Why? Because the fig leaves were not adequate enough. Even with fig leaves, they could not be covered before God. Now, let's look here at God's character in this. What could have happened if God just rested in His justice was the moment that they took a bite, and before the bite of fruit, whatever it was, reaches their stomach, they could have and should have been in hell. But they were not. Why is it? Is it because God's not just? No, He is just, but He is merciful and He extends His mercy. God's mercy and grace is demonstrated to sinners who have openly rebelled against His authority and love. Let's understand this about mercy and grace. 
Mercy and grace are hand in hand, yet distinct. Grace is, as we've often heard, um, it is unmerited favor. It is a gift of God. It is something that he gives that is not deserved or earned. Mercy is a withholding of what is deserved and earned. So I want you to understand this. When we think about grace and mercy, if Adam and Eve never sinned, they would never know the grace and mercy of God. If you and I never sinned, they would not understand the grace and mercy of God. Think about this in your own life. When you were without Christ, before you got saved, you did not know the grace and mercy of the Lord. It was experienced, but you didn't know it. God had given it, but you didn't know it. And so it is not until we are truly born again, till we see, till He has revealed His work in us, as we've seen this now, as we can look back and see how He clothes them, will we go, well, that's nothing more the fact that they've made it alive from verse 7 to verse 21. That's nothing but grace and mercy, right? They deserved at verse 7 to be, and Adam and Eve were then killed and thrown into a lake of fire, right? But they weren't. Instead, they get to still stand before the Lord as He judges them righteously, but yet in His righteousness, He pours out His grace and mercy because grace and mercy is reserved not for perfect people and not for obedient people, but for imperfect, disobedient rebels. This is why you and I love grace and mercy so much. Why? Because we know we are the disobedient rebels. This is why throughout all the rest of the Bible, what themes are we going to find over and over about God's character? His grace and His mercy. And we tie them together because God is constantly giving what is not deserved and constantly withholding what is deserved. Think about how many times in the life of Israel that he should have and could have destroyed them because of disobedience. Even at times where he said, I'm done. And then what would happen? They'd cry unto him and he would say, I've heard your prayer. I've heard your heart. You have repented, therefore, and he he used this language and we'll deal with it another day. Uh, and, and over in uh, chapter 6 of Genesis, when we get to that with the flood, that he repented, meaning this, this idea that he's going, I'm going to, instead of giving you what you deserve and what I should do to you, which is say, I'm done, I'm going to, by my grace and mercy for you, remember the covenant which I made with your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will not utterly destroy you. I will punish you, right? And all throughout, what does he continuously do with the prophets is give them this promise much like he does to Adam and Eve, that there is life. And though we understand this, that for them, there was only real life and obedience. Think about this. They could have had the tree of life had they obeyed. They don't get to anymore. It's gone. But for you and I, one day we get to look forward to the day in Revelation 22 where we can partake. Who can partake, he says in Revelation 22? Only those who do and obey the commands of the Lord. Obedience brings a blessing. This sets this up. But His mercy and His grace is demonstrated against these, these sinners here in His garden, here in His creation. And they are His creation. They're there to bear His image. They're there to know Him and to live for Him and to keep this place a place of obedience to God. And yet in their disobedience, what does God do? Mercy and grace. The second thing about God's character that we notice in this is that God provides a greater covering for their nakedness which He uses to teach them about substitutionary blood sacrifice and to establish a sacrificial system. We'll get into that here in a little bit um, while later if I talk faster. And if y'all listen fast, right? If you guys are listening too slow, I'm not going to get through all this. <laughs> right? Look at that. He provides a greater covering. They had covered themselves already, hadn't they? Sure. As we had talked about the past couple of weeks, what is understood as they made themselves aprons, an apron is... Not a full body covering, right? This isn't head, shoulders, knees, and toes. This is just privates, and that's it. This is covering up the sexual organs because they had been told and commanded by God to be fruitful and to multiply. But now, what was meant to be a blessing, much like with Eve, her husband and, ch- and children were supposed to be a blessing. Now, they're, because of sin, they've become the, 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 the giving of sorrow. Now, she's going to have sorrow through those things. So, it's through th- this, what is meant to be to, to allow them to know each other, to be fruitful and to multiply, now it's shameful. The reason why everyone in here tonight has on clothes, right? We would all say, praise the Lord, amen, hallelujah, we got clothes on. Regardless of what they look like, if they got holes in them, if they stink, if they're out of season, it doesn't matter, we're clothed, right? Because that's the point, to clothe nakedness. And yet, their fig leaves did not truly cover their nakedness. 
It covered it in their own eyes, but even not even in their own eyes, because what happens after they clothe themselves in fig leaves? Even they know it's not good enough because in verse eight, they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees. So even though that they've clothed themselves, even they know it's not up to par. There is a reason why every religious zealot from every walk of life and every single religion that there is in this world, uh, all, all, every pagan religion that there ever has been and ever will be, that as sincere as they are, they know that I've got to do more, be more, do more, be more, do more, be more, do more, be more. But they can never reach the point where they are right before God. Why? Because no matter what we do, no matter who we are, we cannot be right before God in our own clothing, in our own garments. It is what A.W. Tozer called fig leaf religion. Third, as we find about God's character, His patience with His creation. And it's shown along with His love for it. Now, I meant to have verses. I, I spent time this evening putting these little verses together for each one of these. All right, here, let me go back for half a second. God's mercy and grace being demonstrated. You can read, and I won't read it for sake of time, but Psalm 86, verse 15 Right? If you take a note, Psalm 86, verse 15, for God's mercy and grace. For God providing a greater covering. You can read all of Hebrews 9, which we'll get into later on tonight. Uh, Lord willing. Then God's patience with His creation. I'll read for us tonight. Very familiar passage. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, here in that passage, just a few verses before, he's dealing with that of the days of Noah. And, and we're going to get into this in a few weeks, months, sometime when we get into the, the flood, is that God gave them 120 years for Noah to preach. He showed his patience with people that he did not have to. What is God's patience but anything other than a demonstration of his grace and mercy? So God being patient, and his patience especially towards those who are impatient, to those who are not worthy of his patience, Right? It is His grace and mercy demonstrated. Then the fourth thing that we find is this about God's character is that God shows that He is always at work for His people and working for the greater good of redemptive history. Of course, another familiar verse with you to, to go along with this, Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them who are the called according to His purpose. What is happening here in the garden is not catching God off by surprise, but rather this is allowing him to fully demonstrate all that he is. As we talked about, if there is no sin, then we can't grasp grace and mercy. We might be able to experience some love, and that's great. But we don't know all the fullness of grace and mercy. Grace and mercy, we know the fullness of it when we've realized that we need salvation and that we have been saved. Because if we don't need to be saved, then we don't need grace and mercy, right? And now as we look here, and we look, what we find is that God's grace and mercy is greater. We find that God's provision is greater. We find that God's loving kindness or patience is greater. All right, pop quiz. God's work is There we go. You, you all got an A. You, uh, Rick will give you a, a prize on the way out. Tonight. <laughs> Dollar apiece. <laughs> no, just kidding. Right? You got it. That's it. God is greater. That's it. And so we see here that all that God is and all that God does for His people, it is greater than what mankind has produced. Up to this point, man tried to produce his own covering. Man tried to produce his own way. Man tried to produce his own standing before God. Man tried... All these things. And what do we still do? We try to still produce it and we can't... And what we find is that God's way is always greater. And now we get into the, really the, the meat of verse 21, and we see the pictures in the coats of skins. All right? Now you would say, well, he just clothes them with coats of skin. Absolutely he does. But there is so much depth and understanding about the rest of the Bible. If we understand verse 21, we see that the whole Bible is flowing out of these verses in chapter 3. It's all there, these coats of skins. First of all, the first picture that we find here is the requirement of blood. Notice that when they had the fig leaves, that God said, oh, you guys are good now. No, he didn't say that. Nor when they clothed themselves did they say, oh, look, we're good now. No, they heard the voice of the Lord and they ran and they hid because they knew even though we've done this, we're still not right before God. We're still naked. This is still not right. 
Morris writes about this. He says, they learned in type that an atonement or covering could only be provided by God and through the shedding of blood on the altar. And he's, he notes uh, Leviticus 17, 11. We'll, we're going to get into Leviticus here in a little while. Uh, so just hang tight. We see that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That The blood is required. So let's, let's go forward to something that you and I understand much better than even the, the Old Testament, perhaps. Let's look at the cross. right? Let's go to what Jesus did. What do we find? We find the righteousness, the wrath, and the justice of God. Right? We also find His grace, His mercy, and His love. We find them poured out. Wrath, justice, poured out upon the Son who's, who's not guilty. He's done nothing wrong. He's innocent. But yet, He is taking on the sin of those who are guilty, to those who have done wrong, to those who have rebelled. And in this, what he is doing is he is having to shed his blood. Why? It has to be Jesus' blood. Think about this. You and I, could we have shed our blood to cover our sins? No. Why? Because our blood is tainted with a sin curse. Every woman and man in this world who has ever existed including the Virgin Mary herself, has had tainted blood full of sin. So what can God, how can God accept a sacrifice? Well, because it has to be the blood of one that is pure and perfect. It must be God's blood, if you will. And, and so the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, sheds His blood because without His blood, there is no atoning sacrifice. And all throughout the Old Testament, what we find is that there's going to be nothing but blood covered we forget that the old testament tabernacle and temple we see all the sunday school pictures and it's beautiful it's ornate and it was beautiful and ornate but let's not forget either especially on the day of atonement which we'll get into in a little bit the place became a bloody mess it looked like a slaughterhouse we can't forget this god required innocent blood and this is why we must never think of calvary as some sort of thing where Jesus kind of got walked up this, you know, little, little tiny hill and he got kind of beat a little bit and he had a couple black eyes and he laid down and they tied a rope around him and, and they just left him up there for a little while and he just got tired and, and passed out. No, his blood flowed and it had to have. I've heard it been preached before and, and I know the intention is right. All it takes is just one drop of his blood. No, if that was the case, Jesus could have came, pricked his finger and said, all right, covered what's the idea of blood it's much more than just shedding a little bit of blood right it wasn't just that jesus had to collect a cup of his blood no it is he had to die to shed all that he is because the bible tells us in leviticus as well that the life is in the blood so the idea of the shedding of blood is that the life has to cease to be life the life has to die so the innocent life has to die for the uh, the guilty life so here's what we've got here. In the requirement of blood, we find that they go from being naked, even still in their fig leaves, to then being covered in coats of skin. The fig leaves out of self-righteousness and self-work and self-religion and self-motivation, all these things. But that the coat of skin, which in order to get a coat of skin, we've talked about this, and we'll keep talking about this, it requires blood, but not just a little bit of blood. If you're going to take all the skin off of an animal, what must you have done? Killed it. I, I, I'm, I don't call myself a deer hunter necessarily because I don't go near as much as I'd like to. But every time I've killed a deer, which hasn't been a lot, but it's been enough to know this, that when, it's not very funny, <laughs> but when you kill a deer, you've got to do something after that, right? One, you've got to celebrate, right? <laughs> Praise the Lord a little bit, get excited, you've got to find it, all that stuff. Once you get through all that, Here's, that's where the real work begins, all right? I've let many a deer go because that's where the real work begins. But here's what happens. You have to, once you get past gutting, in order to get to the meat, what do you have to do? You've got to skin it. But in order to get the skin off a deer, right, if anybody's got a bear rug in here hanging up on your mantle above your fireplace, right, with, uh, hey, we're coming to your house, okay? But if you got one, you know how that bear skin got on your wall, not just because you bought it, but the bear had to die to get the skin. So what do we find here? 
to be clothed in skin is that there had to be death. There had to be shedding of blood. And this will set the precedent for the rest of the Bible. Second thing is this sets up the sacrificial system and especially the Day of Atonement. This is going to be incredibly important as we look at the rest of these verses as well, all right? Because as we've been talking about, the garden is much more than just the Garden of Eden as we think about it, this place of of lush fruit and vegetables and trees and all this stuff. This is a figure and a picture of the tabernacle of God where God dwells with man and man dwells with God as it was meant to be. If it was not so, then look look over in Revelation 21-22. What does God say He's going to do? That He will tabernacle or dwell with His people. What do we find John chapter 1 telling us when uh, Jesus, God, comes to be in the flesh with man and for them? That it says He dwelt among them. It is the same idea of to tabernacle, to dwell with, to be with. And so it was a place, the tabernacle, the temple then became a place of sacrifice, but ultimately the garden was meant to be this place where God knew man and man knew God and lived together. But because of sin, man is going to be driven out. But this is going to picture the, the sacrificial system that we set up throughout the rest of the Old Testament, but especially that day of atonement where Man is going to have this continuous time where there must be the shedding of blood for atonement. Until when? Until the perfect Lamb of God comes to take away the sins of the world. And that Lamb has come. His name is Jesus. He is the Lamb of God. And this is why in Revelation chapter 5, the, the, the angelic hosts are praising the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor and power. Right? Because He's redeemed. But many, for many tribes and tongue and nations and all this. And look, let's look first of all over in, maybe, maybe just for a hot minute. Turn with me to Leviticus 16. Are you there yet? <laughs> no. <laughs> Leviticus 16. I'm not going to read the whole chapter just for, for sake of time, but you can look here. Chapter 16, most of Leviticus is dealing with this. Here's how to sacrifice. And here's why to sacrifice. And if you do it wrong, you will die instead. That's rough, isn't it? I want to thank the Lord that when we walked in through those back doors tonight, I saw nobody coming in here dragging a goat, right? Nobody had a pair of uh, turtle doves. We didn't have a fire going, getting ready to do any sacrifices or things, right? We, we kept the goats in the back tonight. <laughs> no, just kidding. Just kidding, all right? If you're watching this, we're just, we're just playing, all right? Think about this, we didn't have to come in here with a sacrifice. Why? The sacrifice has been made. But here in this time, God required it. And He required it continuously. And He required the Day of Atonement. How often did the Day of Atonement happen? One day. Once a year. How many years? Every year. Why? Was it because the blood wasn't covering? Well, to a degree, yeah. It was meant to be ultimately a picture that there is coming something greater and someone greater. There's coming a greater blood, if you will, than that of bulls, goats, and lambs, sheep. There's coming the blood of the Lamb of God. That's what all this is pointing to. So tonight, I won't do it, but just mark that in your Bible, Leviticus 16, and you can read all about the steps and the order of the Day of Atonement, and you will see the detail in it. God was very detailed in how He expected and desired the Day of Atonement to go because if it did not go God's way, the high priest who was the only one allowed to go into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat once a year to do this whole process of the Day of Atonement for his sins, for the sins of the people, right? The whole thing. If it did not go right, he was going to die. And they were going to drag him out of there. And it was going to be a bad day for everybody. But I want you to know this. And as we look through these next few things as we're, as we're going through tonight, I want you to remember when we talk about Old Testament sacrifice, Please know this, that not a single sacrifice of an animal ever saved a soul. As a matter of fact, every single one of them was meant to point to the fact that they could not save their soul and that there has to be something greater. Every sacrifice had to not just be done to sacrifice. Think about this. We're talking about Genesis chapter 3. What happens immediately in chapter 4? Right? Cain and Abel take sacrifices, but what does Cain do? He brings the wrong sacrifice, not just because it's fruits and vegetables, but he brings the wrong heart about it. It is not one of faith. But Abel brings one that is right, which is by blood, but it is one of faith. So you can shed all the blood that you want, but if it, was, if it is without faith, then it is worthless. 
You can shed the blood of a thousand goats and ten thousands of rams, and without faith it is nothing. This is why Jesus' sacrifice is perfect and it's complete and it's sufficient and we must put our faith in His atoning sacrifice, not our own. This is why tonight we don't have to bring in bulls and goats and rams. This is why tonight we look at the cross and realize that the Lamb of God has had His blood shed for us and if you will, sprinkled it upon the mercy seat of the heavenly places to allow us now to enter into the Holy of Holies, not by blood, of, of bulls and goats, but by through His precious blood. The reason why you can pray tonight, the reason why you can know God, it is through His shed blood. Now, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God's people will be required to sacrifice to the Lord as a substitutionary animal to cover or to atone their sins, but it has to be by faith in God's provision and God's promise. Notice those two words coming up again. God's provision and God's promise. Ultimately, they have to trust in God's work and God's word. It is God's word that has told them when to sacrifice, what to sacrifice, how to sacrifice, why to sacrifice. But they're trusting in the work of God to actually cover them because they know that even though they might kill this thing, even though they might shed the blood, that it has to be God who accepts the sacrifice and covers them. So ultimately, everything, Old and New Testament, comes down to Faith in the Lord's provision and promise. His word. His work. Now turn with me over to Hebrews 9 for just a moment. You see, in Genesis 3, you find that God provided Adam and Eve a covering. But it was temporary. Any, any parents out there, raise your hand if you're a parent. All right? You ever bought uh, clothes for your kid? All right? What happens? You get to buy them a nice onesie when they turn a year old and they get to wear it the rest of their life, right? No, no, not quite so much. Right? You go to Walmart or you go to uh, Carter's, somewhere nice, right? Maybe you go to the, the, the Dollar General, right? And you get, get a nice new onesie. And by the time you get home, you outgrown it, right? I had that problem, right? <laughs> now, yeah, I, I was big boned, okay? I was a normal-sized baby for a while, but I got big bone quick, okay? You outgrow things. And we think spiritually here, when we look at their coats of skins, it's not going to last forever. Clothes deteriorate, right? I've got this shirt. I like this shirt. It's purple. But you know something? What y'all don't know from out there, but what you'd know if you came up close to me, and I'll know if you do after the service because you're just being nosy. But i got all sorts of discoloration around the collar. i got holes and stuff in it from from wearing it for years and years. You know what I really need? I need a new purple uh, polo, right? And I hadn't had I like this one. But think, it wears out. It goes away. It fades away. But look at Hebrews 9. It says, uh, let me see. Where do I want to start? You know what? Y'all got time? We'll, here we go. Let, verse number one, all right? We'll, <laughs> we do some popcorn. Have each person read a, read a verse. Go around. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances divine service and a worldly sanctuary. Notice this here. He's going to be talking about what the day of atonement would look like and he's going to stop short of some details because he's going to get to the, the major point. That the greater tabernacle is found in Christ. That the, the greater Eden is found in Christ. That the greater sacrifice is found in Christ. That the greater prophet is found in Christ. That the greater king and priest, and the greater sacrifice, it is found in Christ. Look at this. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the shewbread, which is called the sanctuary, and after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. In the words of Dr. Bowman, hint class, all right? Uh, with Dr. Bowman, when, when we got to something that's going to be on a test, he used to say, hint, you're not going to have a test. Verse 5 is going to be very important with where we're going in verse 22 to 24. Because we're going to be looking at how those cherubim cover there at the gates of the garden, right? To keep the way of the tree of life. What's it a picture of? The mercy seat. All right? Now, hold on to that thought for the next few weeks, okay? Mark that down. Now, when we, these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went in the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, why? Because he must go with blood. You see that requirement? He says, uh, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for 
the heirs of, uh, of the people, the Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while at the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washing and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of a reformation. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered in once, into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause He is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called that receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force uh, after men uh, are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. It was bloody in there. He says, And almost... All things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us nor yet that he should offer himself often as a high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of the others of others. But uh, for then must he have often suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is pointed unto men once to die after this, the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. We find in Hebrews 9 here a greater day of atonement. The greatest day of atonement when the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is prophet, priest, and king, the greater Adam, the last Adam, where Adam failed as prophet, priest, and king in the garden, Christ succeeds in his obedience. And he's more than just a priest. He's more than just the one making a sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. He's more than just providing blood. It is His own blood. It's more than just Him coming once a year to make offering for us as the high priest did. It's that He has done it once and for all, that it is sufficient for all people, for all time, to all who would call upon Him. And so this is showing something far greater that God promised an ultimate covering through the seed of the woman. Third, we find the third picture of the coat of skin is that of the priestly garb. Now, the priestly garb couldn't just wear whatever they want. And the priests in the Old Testament weren't wearing three-piece suits. They weren't wearing J. Crew or anything like that. They were wearing what God had told them to wear, right? Here's, here's, what, here's what Salehammer writes about this to help put us together. In the laws of the Pentateuch, the people are instructed to make tunics for the priests who enter God's presence at the tabernacle. The tunics covered the priests' nakedness lest they incur guilt and die, Exodus 28.42. The author may be anticipating this lasting ordinance, Exodus 28.43, and drawing attention to the importance of covering the nakedness of the man and the woman. The role of the priest as developed in the Pentateuch is thus foreshadowed in God's past work. Notice this. 
in order to come before the presence of God, in order to enter into the Holy of Holies, you must be right before God. You must be clothed before God. But even more so, you must be clothed by God, by His standards. The, the priests there could not just get their old you know, tunic, uh, you know, oh honey, just uh, hand me my other old tunic. No, it had to be the right tunic. It had to be the right way to approach God. Because if we don't approach God the way in which He has told us to approach Him, then we commit blasphemy and idolatry. We would like to think that we can approach God however we desire, but we must never think so. God has told us how to approach Him. God has given the instructions, and it is found in the Bible. And outside of it is nothing but the way of death. Because to approach God any other way than how He has instructed and allowed is death. Because if they did it just a, a, a half a step wrong, wearing the wrong thing, approaching the wrong way, not being uh, you know, the, the right heart, the right attitude. Could you imagine if God started dropping bodies because people show up to church with a wrong attitude in their heart? Well, we might have revival, huh? <laughs> right, so you're about to walk in the sanctuary and, you know, sister so-and-so drops. And you're like, hey, uh, let, me, let me think about this, right? I know it sounds a little bit silly, that sort of thing, but for them it was a very real reality. They knew that when you approach God, it, this is a serious thing. It's a privilege. And it's a beautiful privilege. By God's grace and mercy that we can approach Him. And now how do we approach Him? By the only way which we can, that is through the blood of Jesus Christ. But here, as we look at these priestly garments, if we remember this, that the priests had to be covered in order to perform their priestly duty of sacrifice to ensure the covering of the people's sins. Meaning this, they had to be covered the right way in order to go do sacrifice for the people so that the people then could be covered the right way. Does that make sense? So if the priest messes up his job, it's a bad day for the whole camp in Israel. right? If the high priest pulls a no-no, the whole of Israel is in big trouble. So what do we see? We see one, Jesus being a greater high priest, the, the greatest high priest, that, that he has uh, committed himself, he has obeyed the Lord, he has uh, done... Uh, fully and completely more than what they could ever possibly do, and it is sufficient once and for all. But we see this as well. As we've been talking about Genesis, that the garden is, yes, the garden of God, but it is as a picture of a tabernacle. And what was Adam called to do? To keep the garden and to dress it. Well, we often look at that and think, well, he's got to get in there and, and start plowing and think, no, no, no. God already told him, you freely eat, except for that tree, right? The fruit's already there. Adam doesn't have to do any gardening. What did it mean? Let's go back to that. Remember, in chapter 2, he is telling him that you have to keep it. Keep it what? The idea is to keep it as it is. How will Adam keep the garden as it is meant to be? Faithful obedience. That's it. The only way that God has ever ordained anything. For us to be right with God, it has always been that. Faithful obedience. When we're saved and clothed by the blood of Christ. How do, you, how do you walk close to the Lord? Faithful obedience. How do you return to the Lord when you've gone wayward? Faithful obedience. Right? And so we see here that Adam messes up in this as the high priest of, of there. Uh, Adam acting as the priest of the garden. He sins, right? Which then makes him naked. And now that he's naked, he's unacceptable. And, and now God becomes unapproachable. Even the point where he looks and he says, me and my wife got to hide. We cannot even approach God because even though we're clothed with what I just made, it's not good enough. But what do we find with the coats of skins? This picture of the priestly work that there is a proper biblical and a bloody covering in order to approach God. Fourth, we find this. We're almost done. It's going to wrap up, right? We're going to put a nice pretty bow on it. So y'all hang in there. <laughs> Number four. And this has been the theme throughout, the innocent substitute. The innocent substitute. At this point in the garden, there's no other people. There's no other sinners yet. They're the only ones. They've tried on their own to make fig leaves and to cover themselves, and that's not good enough. They've tried hiding from God. That's not good enough. They've tried giving excuses to God. That's not good enough. They've tried deflecting their sin. That's not good enough. So what do they do? Well, they can do nothing. They can do absolutely nothing. 
What about people of today? You can be as religious as you want. Not good enough. You can be baptized. You can be sprinkled and tinkled and dunked and sunk. Ain't good enough. You can be a member of every church in this county. Not good enough. You can be a pastor of a church. Not good enough. So, so what is it? It's nothing that you and I can produce to be saved. It's not my blood. It's not my sacrifice. I have no money to give. I have nothing to give God except my sin. And when we give it to him, you know what he says? I'll take it. And instead of just taking our sin, he takes it upon himself and gives us his righteousness. This innocent substitute dies, has its blood shed, its life taken, so that Adam and Eve might be covered and truly covered. John R. Rice writes about this, and he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, which is found in Isaiah 61.10. He says, I think that God meant the same thing when he put those coats of skin around poor, naked, shivering, shame-faced Adam and Eve. And when he took the seamless robe off the dear Lord Jesus, when they nailed him to a cross, Jesus took off the seamless robe of righteousness so we could wear it. It's not much better than that. What we find is, is this great truth is that when we see the skins here in verse 21, there's something much more deep here. It is that while not only that Adam and Eve can never clothe themselves to approach God and be good enough, it's that God says, you can't clothe you, but I can. You can't clothe yourself, but I can. And He clothes them the same way that you and I. What does the Bible tell us about our righteousness? Our righteousness is as filthy rags. And so the moment that you trust Jesus, the moment you are born again, what happens? You are now clothed in His righteousness. It is now imputed to you. And there is no atonement without a substitute. There has to be a right substitute. And our substitute is the Lord Jesus. There is no greater substitute. We are unclean. We are unworthy. But yet, as Jesus, what we find is Jesus, being God and man, he comes to this earth to represent God to man, and He dies on the cross to represent man to God. And in, the, in between, with His arms outstretched, bleeding and dying for us, He acts as the mediator, the go-between, to reconcile two parties that were at odds with each other. So the Bible says that we were enmity with God. That's what sin causes us to be. We're at odds with Him. We're at war with Him. We're rebels against Him. But... The mediator, Christ the mediator, has brought us together through His blood as the sacrificial lamb and as the scapegoat for us. You see, the guilty cannot bear their own guilt. We can't, like we often say, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime, right? Well, here's the thing we've done the crime, and in Adam we've done the crime. That's the issue, is that Adam sinned, therefore his unrighteousness is imputed to our account. Therefore, if we're going to not be unrighteous anymore, we have to have a righteousness imputed to our account. So where does that have to come from? From someone else, from a substitute. But the substitute that gives us righteousness is perfect. It is, he is greater. He is Christ the Lord. And when He gives us that righteousness, we are righteous now in the sight of God, not just for a little while, not just while you're walking right or going to church. But the moment that He clothes you in His righteousness, it is a robe of which will never be taken off. It's a robe that you can't put on yourself. Therefore, it's a robe you can't take off yourself. It's a robe that there's not a single soul that could put it on you except for Christ. Therefore, there's not a single soul that could take it off of you. And Christ says He will not take it off because now when the Father looks at you, He sees the righteousness of His Son. It is not just as if you had never sinned. It's as if there was never the sin curse at all. It's as if all you've ever been now is as righteous as Christ. 
That's the beauty of this innocent substitute. That's the beauty of unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. I'm one that believes that the one who is there in the garden with them is, is none other than, than Jesus Christ. Walking there, talking there to them. Some have made the argument, and, and I, I tend to disagree with them, who have said that God taught them how and told them how to make these clothes of skin. I believe that it's not the case that He showed them how to do it and talked them through it, but rather that He did it Himself. That it is God Himself who established the sacrificial system. Why? Because it is God Himself who is going to be the sacrifice for man. And what we see as we move on through this is that as He clothes them in these coats of skin is that we find the fifth truth tonight and then we're done. Is that salvation in the Old Testament and salvation in the New Testament is not different. Sadly, there are many who believe that it is. Sadly, there are many who believe that it was the blood of bulls and goats and rams that saved them. And it was not, my dear friend. How has anyone ever been saved? How could anyone ever be saved? It's found in this. One, by grace. Adam and Eve tried to save themselves by covering themselves, but they weren't covered. What were they given? God made. Much the same language as it says, in the beginning, God created. So, after sin, God made a coat of skin for them. We find that God gives it. A coat of skin is a gift. It is a gift of grace. And in that gift of grace, not only do we find that it is a gift of God provided by God and offered by God, but it is to remind them that as they wear and as their descendants wear, coats of skins, and then for you and I, the clothes that we wear now, it reminds us of something. Several somethings. One, it reminds us of our sinfulness and nakedness and shame before God and before man. But it reminds us that God has made a way. That God has made a covering. That it is not supposed to stay this way. And that there is going to be a day where we will put off this corruptible flesh and put on incorruption. Where this mortal will put on immortality. All by grace. Old, New Testament, by grace, through faith. There is no grace in having to make sacrifices. We look there in the atonement, right? I mean, it's, it's grueling. It's bloody. It's difficult. Can you imagine the discouragement the day after the Day of Atonement? I mean, sure, you might go, well, we've, we've been atoned for yesterday. Sure, but now we know. In another 364 days, we're going to have to go through this again. And then after that, again and again and again. For you and I, New Year is great, right? We watch the ball drop. We listen to people on TV lip-sync to us, right? And it's so great. We watch the shows, the ball drops, right? We, you know, we, we celebrate, right? We do the horn and, and we go to bed, right? And then we sleep, right? That's it. A New Year's come. But it's supposed to be a time of celebration. But for them, every time that sun, or we went around the sun one more time, they knew the day before, if you and I, Christmas Eve, right? We're like, oh, tomorrow's going to be good. It's Christmas, right? But for them, the day before, the day of atonement, the time of mourning. It's a time of great difficulty. You understand there's about to be an immense amount of blood shed. Why? Not because the blood that's being shed is guilty, but because I am guilty. And also knowing and understanding this, that the blood of those animals could not save, but it is faith. Not in the blood of those animals, but faith in the one it's being offered to. Faith in God's promise. Faith in God's provision. How do we know? The Bible tells us later on in Genesis that Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. To believe God means what? His word and his work because in that moment, in that covenant, God said, here's what I'm going to do. There's my promise, a.k.a. my word. 
And here's the work I'm going to do, which is his provision, that he will do it. Who walked the covenant with Abraham? Not Abraham. Abraham didn't even walk it. God did. Why? Because it's by grace through faith. Therefore, all Abraham had to do was just say, yes. A total confidence, a total belief, and a total dependence. And third, and this is where some folks get tripped up a little bit more. Old and new Testament. By grace through faith in Christ. You say, Pastor Joe, Jesus hadn't come and died yet. No, he had not. But every time that day of atonement comes, what is it picturing? That there has to be a greater sacrifice, a more pure and perfect sacrifice, and that one day the last sacrifice will be made, and that sacrifice has been made on Calvary's hill for you and for me. That Jesus is God's provision and promise to the world to pay for their sins. We find by grace through faith in Christ a couple of things. One, a total dependence on God. I can't save me. Only He can. Therefore, all I can do and my only hope is to put my faith in Him and what He has said and what He has done. What He has promised. What He has provided. And all of that is found where? In Christ. Outside of that, there's nothing but loss and death. So the Old Testament looks ahead to the new. I'd said it, I think, a couple weeks ago. I'd heard, heard a, a preacher say, and I think, I believe rightly so, that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Right? There in the middle, what do we find? The cross. Where Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise and provision. That you and I now can say that I'm not clothed in the coats of skins of an animal, but I'm clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, my Lord. And there is nothing and no one, myself included, that can ever remove that robe. For He has given it and bought me with His precious blood. And I'm not saved by my merit, or by my fig leaves, or by my offering, or by the offering of, of any uh, animal or sacrifice, but rather by grace, through faith, in what Christ has done. Let us pray. Lord, we come to You, we thank You for this night. Grateful that we can study Your Word. God, I pray that each one of us will understand the, the great depth of Your Word, God, that You have revealed so much to us, ultimately, for our good and for Your glory, that we would know Christ. God, that this book is not uh, just some sort of list of do's and don'ts, but God, this is showing us what has already been done and promised and accomplished for us by Christ Jesus. May we trust in Him. May we walk by faith. May, may we be encouraged tonight and to carry this message with us to show the world, God, that there is no other way outside of Jesus, but that through Jesus there is hope, there is atonement, there is, uh, there is redemption. God, there is so much to be thankful for. Help us to praise You for it and to go now with these truths upon our heart and our mind. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time. And Lord, I pray that you would use us as we go from this place. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, y'all have a great rest of your week. Come back Sunday and uh, come back next week because I had something I was going to